This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads, and it's completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. As a serving member of the military and an attorney, Major Jason Wright knows only too well the oaths and responsibilities that are central to the integrity of both his work and the nation he serves. Having a fair trial is, in my view, one of the cornerstones of, of any democratic system. But what happens when your orders within the military conflict with the legal framework and moral fabric of the country you're trying to serve? It was a question Jason was forced to answer when he found himself involved in some of the most controversial and highly publicized legal proceedings of the 21st century, the trial of terrorist suspects at Guantanamo Bay. There are thousands of these terrorists in more than 60 countries. They are recruited from their own nations and neighborhoods and brought to camps in places like Afghanistan where they are trained in the tactics of terror. In this episode, I speak with Jason about his work in those cases, the career-changing decision he felt compelled to make, and its long-lasting ramifications. In 2004, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was named as the architect of the worst terrorist atrocity in US history in the 9-11 Commission's official report. Jason Wright, was tasked with helping to present KSM's defense at the Guantanamo Bay trials. He's one of the biggest catches in the war on terror. Pakistani authorities have finally found Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Jason, as an attorney, when you have a client such as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's been named by the government as the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, who's been identified as such in the media for years, even before the trial takes place. How do you, as a defense attorney, approach that type of case? There had been a lot of press before I, I was assigned to represent Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in the 9-11 proceedings in Guantanamo Bay about his complicity in the events. I was serving as an active duty judge advocate with the U.S. Army JAG Corps. I had practiced as a defense attorney for soldiers for a number of years and also had a background in international human rights law, which made me a good candidate in the eyes of the Secretary of Defense's office for placement as a public defender for JAG attorneys. I knew going into the position in 2011 that I would be representing potentially high-value detainees who had conspired against the government, at least had allegedly had conspired against the government. I was placed on the 9-11 case to represent one of the co-defendants, as you mentioned, KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who at the time, was the self-professed mastermind of 9-11. I had joined the case in 2011. There had briefly been a start in the 2007 to 2008 years under an earlier version of the Military Commissions Act where Mohammed and others, uh, the other co-defendants, had actually fired their lawyers. They told the court they wanted to plead guilty. They wanted the death sentence. 
And they even filed a public document in court, which you can see, Dan, which is the Islamic response to the charges. So, you know, I went into this first not knowing which team I was going to be assigned on, and then a little and knowing that this is the position of these individuals. It turned out I was assigned to Mr. Muhammad's team. Shortly in about six months, I became one of the lead defense counsels for the team. The point to go back to your first question is fundamental. Everyone's entitled to a fair trial. Everyone's entitled to test the system to make sure that it, it worked. Defense attorneys, whether they're defense attorneys appointed by the Department of Defense to represent Guantanamo Bay detainees, or defense attorneys that are public defenders before federal courts, or public defenders before state courts, or even retained defense attorneys, they're doing it to represent the individual, but more importantly, they're doing it to represent constitutional principles. So the Sixth Amendment in our constitutional system, the right to a fair trial, the right to an, an attorney, the right to due process, all of those principles are what defense attorneys are representing at the end of the day. My job was easy. I got to do it in a military uniform where literally I wear the flag on my shoulder and I was appointed by the Secretary of Defense. But there are thousands of defense attorneys every day around the world who stand up and they fight for principles at the end of the day. Putting aside for a minute the situational connection of attorney and client, with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, you're sitting down with an individual who allegedly is responsible for killing thousands of Americans and who, along with his affiliates, has been involved in violent combat against the American military for a number of years. As a member of the military yourself, how difficult was it for you to establish a professional connection with a client who sees you in uniform and views you as the enemy? It's a good question, and it really speaks to the idea of social distance and social distance theory. Here you have two people on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Quite literally, from September of 2007 to December 2008, my job as assigned in the U.S. military as a JAG officer was to fight al-Qaeda, where I've been assigned as a legal advisor to a multinational division headquarters responsible for everything north of Baghdad where I spent 15 months advising uh, headquarters staff and later served as an AD camp to the commanding general, where the job that we had as the multinational division north was to take the fight to Al-Qaeda in uniform, where I had the full battle rattle, as they say, and had an assault weapon and a nine millimeter. And I was out doing my job as necessary and also advising on plans from a legal perspective and the like. So I go from being a combatant on the battlefield against Al-Qaeda to being three years later, a defense counsel in a courtroom, foreign courtroom in a foreign location in a different country in Cuba, but on a military base there to represent Al-Qaeda. The juxtaposition, obviously, is, is quite stark. The 9-11 co-defendants, and, and again, this is all publicly reported, very much see themselves as combatants against the West. From a social distance perspective, you couldn't have two more different people meeting in a room. When I arrived, there had already been some additional lawyers on the case for a number of years, some civilians, some military. I wasn't the first person that he saw in this position, showing up in a U.S. military uniform saying, hi, my name is Captain Wright. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, right? That, that's a tough statement, right? For someone who was actually tortured by the U.S. government. So certainly, you know, very challenging. I, I can't get into the particulars of any privileged attorney-client details, but if I go back to first principles, that particular issue that I faced certainly on the extreme when it comes to the juxtaposition between combatants, where one combatant is representing another. You know, it's difficult to establish a rapport with any client within a criminal defense setting. That individual is 
is facing a very significant life event, the possibility of incarceration, the possibility of financial penalties and fines. In the case of death penalty cases, like the 9-11 case, the possibility of death. So trying to establish a relationship of trust between attorney and client in any representation is fundamental, but it's all the more fundamental in any defense proceeding where the person's life is literally in your hands. Before we talk about your specific experience with this case, I wanted to ask you more about some of the background, because we know that KSM and other detainees at Guantanamo Bay were subjected to so-called enhanced interrogation. From your experience, on a practical standpoint, is there anything useful you can actually learn through torture? And on a legal standpoint, even if you learn something, is it actually admissible in court? Sure, I'm happy to discuss it. But from the legal standpoint, Dan, the Convention Against Torture absolutely prohibits the admissibility of, of any statements that are produced through any cruel, inhuman, or otherwise degrading treatment. That's a standard that most countries in the world have signed off on. There's an acknowledgement that any statements uh, derived, and I'll use the word, torture, are fundamentally inadmissible in court. They cannot be used against a defendant in a criminal trial. There's one exception, however. They can be used by someone to sue a torturer. So the international community for years has recognized that torture is, is one of the most heinous crimes that can be committed by a governmental authority, by anyone with any color of governmental authority. So it's absolutely inadmissible because, frankly, it's abhorrent. Governments should not be committing violence on people for the purposes of eliciting information. It's unreliable, but also it's immoral. To the point of unreliability, leaving aside the issue of admissibility, you don't have to take my word for it. U.S. Senator John McCain, the late U.S. Senator from Arizona, himself was a victim of torture after he was shot down in the Vietnam War. And you can read in his, in his memoir how when he was subjected to torture at the hands of his captors, he would tell them anything, anything to make it stop. When the U.S. Senate evaluated the events of 9-11 and then subsequently wrote a report on torture and the events that occurred after 9-11 with the so-called high-value detainees, even the Senate determined that torture was not efficacious. It did not actually lead to any reliable information that was worth using. Now, you may hear anecdotally people who did engage in such tactics as the interrogators, that there may have been some instances where there's information provided that could have led to some additional information. And that may well be true, but that has to be filtered within the realm of noise of all the information that's provided. There's costs associated with that to governmental resources. But even if there is even one piece of information out of a thousand that's elicited during torture, the fact that it's immoral, the fact that it's largely unreliable, the fact that it's illegal, and the fact that it's inadmissible, all those are factors why the international community has rejected it fundamentally. There are some people who might say KSM freely admitted he was guilty. The US government said he was guilty. If they want to cut some corners with the trial, what difference does it make? It's the same kind of logic we heard before the Nuremberg trials, where the Soviets at least argued it was a pointless exercise putting people like Goering on trial when the whole world knew he was guilty. But why do you think it is important to follow the rule of law, even in such extreme cases? Having a fair trial is, in my view, one of the cornerstones of, of any democratic system. 
it's something that in our society we have respected for hundreds of years. It's things that we've had revolutions over uh, in terms of how people should be treated by governmental authorities. I firmly believe that as a cornerstone of any constitutional system, everyone is entitled to due process, even people that admit that they're guilty of some degree of complicity in an event. If we don't have fair trials, then I think our entire democratic system really is in jeopardy because we could stray into totalitarian lines in that regard. If you don't have the opportunity for uh, neutral decision makers, whether it's a jury or a judge, to be in a position to assess fundamentally guilt or innocence on established baselines of due process. With that having been said, in this particular situation, you were faced with being removed from the case to the detriment of your client. I had been on the case for three years. I was put on military orders to be a, a detailed military defense counsel, public defender, and a death penalty case for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, at that time, we had a fairly lot large team. I was the managing attorney and supervising a lot of different aspects. I'd had 13 hearings in Guantanamo Bay. That's where the defendants are. That's where the hearings occur. In a death penalty case in the United States, there are legal requirements that there has to be heightened reliability. Due process is important, always important. But when it comes to death penalty cases, there's U.S. Supreme Court case law that says you have to follow the rules to a T. So I've been appointed by the court, appointed by the Department of Defense to represent him. And in 2012, I was put on orders to go to a graduate program with the military. That program is at the JAG school, and it's compulsory higher education for military attorneys. And you get a master's degree in, in military law. It can be deferred for operational or personal reasons. Now, there are prosecutors that are on cases in the military that come up on orders. It's pro forma once you get promoted to major that you get on orders. And they submit a request for an extension to go next year or the following year, and they're granted. I submitted my request, um, detailed counsel record for a defendant in a capital case. I submit my request, and the basis is the constitutional right to counsel, the statutory right to counsel under the Military Commissions Act, the rules of court. My client wasn't releasing me from the case. The judge wasn't releasing me. And sure enough, it's granted. The message from the JAG Corps, top general, uh, is Major Wright can stay on the case as long as, as it's going on. Well, now the year goes by. This is a pro forma order that comes out. I get put on orders again. And I submit the same request I submitted the year before. There's a new top lawyer for the U.S. Army JAG Corps at the time. And surprisingly, the answer this time is no. Uh, Major Wright has to go to the grant program. When facing a decision like this, which is ethical in nature, I have a duty. I'm a Virginia lawyer. I have a duty to represent my client. When you're involved in a criminal case, you're not authorized to abandon your client unless the client releases you or unless the court orders you to leave the case. Otherwise, we have this idea in our constitutional system and then through case law that the government cannot improperly sever the attorney-client relationship in an ongoing criminal case. There's federal case law on this. There's military case law. And that's exactly what was happening here. The government put me on orders to represent a death penalty defendant, but was improperly severing me from the case. Meanwhile, the lead prosecutor, who was a one-star general, had to get approval every year from the same top general uh, lawyer in the, in the army to continue to stay in the position as prosecutor. That kept on getting it uh, approved every year, but yet Major Wright has to go. So really, it became a, it became a, a constitutional legal issue. Do I stand up for the Constitution and the right to counsel? Or do I follow orders when those orders may actually be unconstitutional? I decided to follow the Constitution. 
And I was no longer under contract with the Army, which meant that when you turn down orders, you are involuntarily separated six months from the day that you turn them down. I turned down the orders in February of 2014 after I got the no. I became a civilian in in August of 2014. So it it was more about uh, standing up for constitutional principles than anything else. I'd like to think that most people would have made the same decision that you did and sacrificed a great career by standing on a point of principle. Unfortunately, I suspect that many people wouldn't have had the courage and fortitude to make that same decision. I mean, we both know that KSM was guilty. He admits he's guilty. But I, like you, feel there's a slippery slope. If we allow ourselves to fall to the level of the people we oppose whilst trying to maintain our country and our constitution and our way of living. When you made this decision, felt it was necessary to turn down these orders, how difficult was it for you in terms of career and in terms of life to make that adjustment to suddenly being an attorney in the civilian world? I think in retrospect, now that uh, some time has passed, it certainly was a difficult adjustment in terms of moving from 10 years of military practice to civilian practice. My last day on active duty in the the U.S. Army JAG Corps was August 26, 2014. My last hearing in Guantanamo was August 23rd, 2014. Most people that transition from government service, some time to try to find a job to figure out what's next. And in my case, I actually, I got married to a great gal from New York. I mentioned I was from Virginia. Uh, I moved to New York. I moved to a completely different town and where I hadn't lived, and I had to start a private practice from scratch. Fortunately, I was blessed with many great mentors that I met along the way in New York. Ended up developing a very fun and exciting and engaging career in my private practice. But certainly, it was challenging, but I never regretted the decision I made. It was the right one to make. I feel really good about the decision I made at the end of the day. Following on from KSM, another notorious terrorist was Anwar al-Awlaki. His parents were from Yemen, but he was born here in New Mexico, and he was an American citizen. He left the United States after 9-11 and ultimately became the leader of al-Qaeda in Yemen, from where he sent or inspired numerous individuals to attack the U.S. and its allies. But in 2017, as you know, He was killed, along with his nine-year-old daughter, in a U.S. drone strike. I don't think anyone seriously questions that he was guilty of terrorist activities. But is it appropriate for the government of this country to conduct extrajudicial killings of U.S. citizens rather than affording them the right to due process? Absolutely something we should not have done. Unequivocally. It's not combat. Under the laws of war, we have standards under the Geneva Convention as to what constitutes hostilities. The U.S. was not an occasion active hostilities uh, against him uh, on foreign soil. It very much was a targeted assassination that violates public international law. Discussions to the contrary uh, attempt to bleed the lines fundamentally of what's authorized under the laws of war. It's really disappointing to see policymakers take that position. It's one thing if uh, the U.S. government is engaged in an armed conflict with an adversary. That really wasn't happening here. The U.S. government has been fighting a proxy war on terror where there were legitimate lawful means to actually achieve the desired end state. There were other options at the disposal of the U.S. government other than a targeted killing on foreign soil. Could have worked with local authorities for an arrest, a lawful extradition to the United States for trial. 
And it's it's really disappointing because then that is provides a license to other countries to do the same. Now, on a more positive note, there was another client of yours who was held in Guantanamo Bay, not as well known as KSM. But there was really compelling evidence against this guy. He had been identified by locals in Afghanistan as a terrorist. There was blood in his car. The vehicle had been linked with a botched terrorist attack. He had landmines in his possession. And he had a notebook with instructions on how to make bombs and things. Although, on that last point, he did claim that he'd been forced to go to a Taliban-run school where that was the curriculum and he ran away from it. But even aside from the notebook, I mean, we have a bomb, we have a car, we have blood. He seemed to have all of the smoking guns, a slam dunk conviction for a terrorist. But you helped to uncover another side to this entire story. It was a real pleasure representing Obaidullah. I met him around the same time that I started to meet with KSM. And... There had been a number of lawyers on the team for years as well. Abidullah had been in U.S. detention since 2003. He'd been in various stages of detention. Initially, he was arrested in Afghanistan by U.S. forces, taken from a small base to Kandahar, and then later flown to Guantanamo. So he had been in Guantanamo for quite some time by the time I arrived. And as he was about to be charged for various crimes and conspiracies against the U.S. government, for allegedly having these anti-tank landmines near his family's property. He was 16 when he was arrested and uh, detained by U.S. government forces in Afghanistan. As you noted, for uh, one of the major allegations was that he had 20 or so anti-tank landmines buried near his property. This is at a time in uh, Afghanistan when coalition forces, in order to try to develop information as to who might be supporting the Taliban or al-Qaeda or might be in opposition to the coalition forces or or to the government of Afghanistan, had a bounty program. There are radio announcements in Afghanistan. There are leaflets that were distributed, $1,000, $5,000 for information leading to the arrest of Al-Qaeda. So Abidala was tipped off by a neighbor. A neighbor didn't like the 16-year-old kid that lived nearby, knew about the landmines, and tipped off the coalition forces. When they arrived at the compound to talk to Abidala, they went and they found these mines. They found this notebook that had these notes but they also saw in the back of the courtyard, they saw a white Toyota Corolla sedan that had some blood in the backseat. That's pretty good circumstantial evidence of something bad, right? You got landmines, you got these sketches, and then there's blood in the back of this Toyota Corolla. There had happened to be some intelligence reporting a couple weeks before about a Corolla that had been seen at an attempted bombing. Several people exited the vehicle, a bomb went off prematurely, they got back in and they drove away. That was circumstantial evidence, ultimately, that vital and maybe a, a part of the bomb cell. So I show up. I'm also with another a great co-counsel, uh, military marine co-counsel. And we ask a vital, you know, after establishing a relationship with him, well, tell us about the vehicle. Ask my brother. Well, his brother's in Afghanistan. And you want your client to be forthcoming to tell you the facts and the truth so you can try to help with the defense. Lo and behold, sometime later, about a year later, we had a great investigator on the case a Navy reserve officer, whose full-time duty actually happened to be uh, as an FBI agent. This FBI agent, who is now uh, part of the defense team, goes to Afghanistan. And what does he do? He talks to the brother. He gets the full story. And as the Amnesty International uh, report reveals, first, we discovered that these landmines were from the Soviet era. There were anti-tank landmines that were Italian-made 
uh, likely purchased by the U.S. government given to the Mujahideen to fight uh, Soviet forces. Those landmines were near the property. However, according to, to all the family members, when the family fled during the Soviet occupation, a Soviet commander had occupied the house. This house was on a crossroads. After the Soviets fled, the family moved back to the compound. They found landmines all over the place, so they buried them far off. This is pretty consistent with what the UN demining programs had found about Afghanistan following the occupation, that there are landmines everywhere. And a lot of farmers kept them because they actually could be useful for the purposes of blowing up rocks, engaging in other activities for their farming needs. But in any event, Baidalena told us that his uncle buried them when they moved back. And sure enough, that's consistent with the story of the family. The blood in the car. Three days before Baidalena was arrested by U.S. forces, he celebrated the birth of his first daughter. And he could not tell me and my co-counsel about this because there's certain subjects that are actually taboo to talk about within the Afghan culture. Things like childbirth and women reproductive processes. But his brother could talk about it because his brother, under, under the culture at the time, was allowed to take his wife to the hospital. A vital was not. So what had happened was the family rented a Toyota Corolla sedan from a taxi driver. And uh, about a week before his wife was due, when she went into labor, due to cultural reasons, Abidala didn't go to the hospital. His brother took his wife to the hospital. And there's so many checkpoints in Afghanistan at that time in 2003 that they couldn't make it to the hospital in time. So Abidala's brother delivered Abidala's young daughter in the backseat of the sedan. So our investigator got all, all the facts, had declarations, but he gets even better. You think this sounds incredible. This can't be true. How convenient, right, that they rented the sedan. Well, the family even had records of a land sale about a year later to the taxi driver that they rented the car from because when Obidal was arrested, U.S. forces took the vehicle. And the taxi driver comes back and says, where's my car? That became proof that we were able to present to the U.S. government to present the actual facts, to give him an opportunity to, to contest the allegations. He wasn't tried. His case was dismissed. And then through an administrative board hearing, Obidala was later released by the U.S. government in 2015, based really on the bravery and courage of the family members and certainly the FBI investigator who flew to Afghanistan to track down all this information. That goes to fair trial, that goes to due process, and that's, that's the system working, ultimately. So thanks to you and your colleagues, this gentleman ended up having a happy ending story, and he found justice. But looking at the bounties that you mentioned... The number of people who were subsequently released from Guantanamo Bay as being innocent, plus the torture and so on. How did we get to this point at a governmental level that somehow in trying to protect freedom, we went down a dark path where we deprived others of their rights? Yeah, I wouldn't categorize the U.S. government as a whole when it comes to the policies concerning torture, enhanced interrogation, Guantanamo Bay. There were several people in the Bush administration at the time that these policies were, were conceived that were in, in the administration, whether at the Department of Justice or the State Department or the CIA or the Department of Defense, who raised a red flag. In credit to JAG officers and to military officers that swear an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, you had the top generals in each one of the services, top JAG generals, legal officers, all say that establishing Guantanamo Bay having enhanced interrogation, all of these run counter to American principles. So these are the people that wear the, the flags on their shoulders. They say it, it's against our constitutional principles and against our rule of law to establish 
uh, Guantanamo, to have an enhanced interrogation, and to violate these principles of a due process. There were people within the State Department and the Department of Justice that also had the same view. But yet, as you know, history has a different story to tell. Now, when it comes to the effect or impact of being in detention in Guantanamo Bay or being subjected to enhanced interrogation techniques, what are the potential consequences of that to the individual? Certainly retaliation. That, that certainly, there are a number of instances, some detainees, not many. Statistically, there's a reporting requirement, by the way, that the Department of Defense has to follow for released detainees. And that report's available annually. But the, the number of detainees out of the 779 that were detained by the U.S. government that have actually returned to battle or returned to the fight or where their whereabouts are unknown, it's single digits, likely. I, I haven't looked at it recently, but very small number. This is because, by and large, the detainees that were sent to Guantanamo Bay were wrong place, wrong time detainees. These are taxi drivers and shopkeepers and farmers that were turned in on bounties. And there are official government reports that discuss this, ultimately, which is why President Bush released hundreds of detainees, which is why President Obama released hundreds of detainees. Bush actually released more than Obama did. Now the population is down to 30s out of a population of 779. And those that remain are those that are currently subject to criminal proceedings and some uh, where the government believes are too dangerous to release, but yet there's too bad enough information to try them. So there are some certainly that I think a small number, according to U.S. government sources, have resumed hostilities to some extent or another. This is all dated, too. I think most of this is now not really occurring because there haven't been releases in, in a number of years. But there is that fear. But I think what's happened, though, in terms of how the concept of Guantanamo and how the concept of enhanced interrogation has influenced the world as a result of the war on terror is that it did become a rallying cry for terrorist organizations to save their brothers in Guantanamo Bay. And so it became just a very strong tool of counter-propaganda for terrorist organizations around the world. That's what's really been disappointing to see is that aspect of it. When you reflect on the War of Terror and the missteps that occurred, not just in Guantanamo Bay, but also in places like Abu Ghraib in Iraq, obviously a lot of people suffered unnecessarily and a lot of harm was done. But looking forward as these things come to light, are there lessons that have been learned that offer hope that going forward we can learn from this and do much better? I very much, like every every American alive during 9-11, remember it acutely. I was in law school at the time. I was in my first year of law school at George Mason, where you could still see the smoke rising from the Pentagon after it was struck. I'm just as angry as every other American about what happened on 9-11. I know people that were first responders and people that were deeply affected by 9-11. It's actually one of the reasons why I joined the service. Yeah, how we responded to 9-11 with the establishment of Guantanamo Bay as a penal colony, with the degrading of the rule of law, the laws that apply there, with enhanced interrogation techniques, and all the other abuses of the overreach and the national security state during 9-11 has really allowed for other countries to do the same. Journalists are now being detained indefinitely in other countries for national security reasons. They're being called terrorists, just journalists. Some countries are allowing for just expansive national security powers for just normal, legitimate dissent. Dissents that we enjoy in the U.S. under the First Amendment, the most important right, the freedom of speech. So 
the U.S. response to 9-11 and the war on terror really allowed for the seeds of injustice to flourish around the world. I think in many respects, the war on terror has closed. I think it closed actually when President Biden authorized U.S. forces to part Afghanistan. The world is moving on conceptually from that ideological conflict. I think the legacy is what we're dealing with now globally and internationally. It's how the U.S. government gave a tacit license to the rest of the world to do the same. But there is still some hope, and I, I am encouraged. I'm able to serve as a reserve officer, even though I was kicked out of active duty. And I have the pleasure of teaching at West Point part-time. And I, I teach a course on constitutional law and national security law. But one of the things I always point out to the cadets on the U.S. constitutional system is that the opening preamble of the U.S. Constitution says, and we are here in order to form a more perfect union. It doesn't say we're a perfect union. We're trying to form a more perfect union. And when I'm encouraged by the response to 9-11, to the war on terror, is, you know, first and foremost, the courage of the family members and the victims of how they've truly been victimized in this entire process, a lack of justice, lack of accountability. That's been just awe-inspiring. I had the opportunity to meet with family members as part of the case. Just an incredible sacrifice that they all endured. And I hope one day there'll be some resolution to these cases that gives them peace and comfort. But what I've been encouraged about is the response of civil society, the response of law firms, the response of newspapers, all of those different facets of and societal institutions that are actually willing to speak the truth. The number of big law firms in the United States that typically are more oriented to profits than they are to, to social justice, representing Guantanamo detainees before the federal district courts on what are called habeas petitions. It's extraordinary. Some of the top law firms in the country developing a cadre of human rights lawyers sensitized to these issues. That is a very positive development. The number of civil society organizations that developed in the United States and around the world to address these, these issues, that's a very positive sign and encouragement. The level of public awareness. And I have no doubt that individuals that may have been responsible for some of the abuses, either passing the laws or conducting interrogations themselves, I've every reason to believe that they did it believing that what they were doing was morally right and it was in the interest of America and American citizens. I believe that. I firmly do. But I think those individuals, too, were probably regretting some of their decisions. They also were victimized in some respects, being asked to torture, being asked to design the system. So I think, and, and this ideological struggle between what is moral and what is immoral, I think you know the arc of history is eventually going to bend in the right way when it comes to these issues. And the next time the nation's confronted, potentially, with some type of response that may call for similar measures, I think we're training a, a generation that may say, let's, let's call a timeout. Let's think about this a little bit more and think about the consequences. Jason, I really appreciate you talking to me. I think you took a courageous stand on a very important issue. And, you know, it helps to make America the place that everybody wants it to be. So, again, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Jason. Just after I recorded this interview, Jason, now a major in the Army Reserves, was passed over for a promotion to Lieutenant Colonel in Jack. He has the opportunity to be promoted once again in June of 2024. If he doesn't get the promotion, he'll be forced to retire after 20 years of combined service as active or reserve military. And in the next episode, I speak with Sokiel Park of Liberty in North Korea, 
a South Korean-based group that has assisted over 3,000 people in escaping the insidious totalitarian regime of Kim Jong-un. <laughs>